In October, Nick Hubble teamed up with Nigel Farage to launch Fortune and Freedom, a morning newsletter which aims to help people take control of their finances. Nick has an impressive background in newsletters. After a stint at Goldman Sachs, he went into independent writing, where he found he could do a much better job at helping people make the right decisions with their money than if he had remained within the world's biggest investment bank. Since 2012, he has been investigating financial markets and predicting both crises and opportunities for his readers. Now, alongside Nigel Farage, he's brought his skills to Britain. In just over a month, Fortune and Freedom has gained over 33,000 subscribers, perhaps a hint that sentiment is shifting. Nigel Farage has form for going against the status quo, and Nick is certainly not afraid to speak his mind either. Should the financial establishment be nervous about this latest venture? Nick, thanks very much for joining me. Now, I think it's probably safe to say that your, your colleague, Nigel Farage, is better known for his political opinion than his financial expertise, and he's a man who fights hard for what he believes in, um, with results. So what is about the city establishment that has spurred him into this venture, and why have you joined him? I think the key moment when he really considered doing this was when he looked at his own pension statement. That's what he told us. And he was disappointed basically in the returns that the financial industry were providing him, um, you know, how the funds were performing, how the stock market generally was performing. And he thought, well, you know, I should do this myself now that I've got time to. And so he's going to take some people along on the journey with him um, and, you know, share what he's doing and share what he's interested in, what he's thinking about. So I think that's where it all started. But it's important to note that he's got a huge amount of background and credibility in the area generally of, of finance and economics and investing because that's what he did before becoming a politician. In, I mean, really, as far as I'm concerned, it's what he did while being a politician. If you look at his arguments, especially about the European sovereign debt crisis, it was all the sorts of topics and arguments that you know, we tend to make as financial writers as well. So and also it's worth mentioning that that's how I, I found out about him. That's how I know about him. So to me, this makes perfect sense and there's no... Um, you know, disconnect between what he did as a politician, let alone before that, uh, and him writing about finance is as natural as him speaking about finance, which is how I found out about. Right, yeah, you, your your background, you on the Fortune and Freedom website, you are described as working inside the heart of the monster, Golden Goldman Sachs, at some point. What's uh, what's your background been apart from apart from Goldman Sachs? Yeah, they gave me a scholarship, um, and I saw them at their worst, basically in in the financial crisis. Um, so I went to work for the people who predicted the financial crisis, which is the newsletter industry. So newsletter industry writers don't rely on advertising revenue, which means they can be independent. So because of that opportunity to pursue what, in my view, is just me being honest with my reader rather than having to sell a financial product, because of that opportunity, I just you know, gravitated to that straight away instead of doing what I had planned, which was pursue a career in banking and then eventually become a newsletter writer. Something that I am also very passionate about, keeping the independence is something that is so important. Um, you now live in Japan. How, how, does the, how is financial literacy and, and just general attitudes toward fi- towards finance, how is it different there to the UK or any of the other many countries that you've lived in? Yeah, we don't live here yet. We're temporarily based here. We're figuring out where to live. Um, we escaped the lockdown very narrowly by a matter of days. Um, and basically, Japan is a way of thinking about Europe, especially Europe's future, um, deflation you know, and, and huge amounts of government debt. 
um, people in Japan get pay cut cuts every year when there's deflation. You know, that's completely foreign to us in Europe. But I think Nigel and I both see Europe moving towards that um, over time. So I feel like I'm in Europe's future, and that allows me to write about things that are, are relevant to that in interesting ways. Um, my my in-laws, who I would learn most about to answer your question, have invested in in gold, which is one of the key themes of fortune and freedom, and did very well out of that over the years. Um, they're very concerned about the government debt. So I feel like they're not the typical Japanese person. They're a bit similar to, to my own views. Um, I haven't really got a good grasp of what the general financial literacy is in Japan, other than to say that they're very deeply scarred by what happened um, in 1990 and the years after that by the end of the bubble. So they all referred to that period as the bubble. That's, you know, these days we talk about subprime bubble or sovereign debt bubble and, and the bubble bursting. Well, they've had that terminology for 10 years more. Um, oh, the tech bubble is the other one I missed. But 10 years more than us, they are basically in our future. And that makes things really interesting for me here. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. Is that a scary future? Is that a future that we can learn from? I know a lot of your writing, you, you're learning a lot from history. You, you look back, but to be able to look forward as well is, uh, is very interesting. Yeah, is it something that you're worried about? Well, I like living in Japan a lot for the time periods that I've been here because all the good things apply to you here, the, the food and the quality of service. But life in Japan for working people is incredibly tough. It's incredibly difficult. And the question is, is that because of the Japanese culture or is it because of something to do with the economic and financial situation that they've been in for about 30 years now? And I'm 50-50 on that. I don't know. I've been reading some articles either way. But I mean... The, the houses are very small, the cars are tiny, everything's got to be efficient, efficiently run. There's lots of make-work policies for people to have jobs that really aren't doing anything particularly useful. So it's a mixed bag for our future and it's very difficult to untangle what is Japan being Japan and what is Japan being in a, a deflationary period of too much debt and struggling economically. I suppose that then leads on to kind of what's happened to the rest of the world this year. Um, I've read, uh, recently read your Abolish the ONS piece, an uh, interesting history of, of Hong Kong. Um, and building from scratch, and I suppose that can also apply to Japan. Japan during its boom came after the Second World War, where it was obviously much worse hit than some of the other Europe, some European countries, certainly worse than the UK. It was able to build from scratch. It enjoyed a boom. And then when the bubble burst, obviously things have, have gone downhill. But yeah, interesting. A couple of interesting questions from this sort of build from scratch proposition. Um, the first is, can we really apply the lesson, the, the Hong Kong lesson, I suppose it is, of low, low bureaucracy to the UK with all, all of its embedded issues already? I think the key measure on this general topic is not whether you're sort of free market or not. The key measure is in which direction you're changing. So China, for example, is not very free market but it's moving towards that position slowly over time. And that's where it gro its growth comes from. So the UK has a choice. It can go towards the free market, towards the Hong Kong or Singapore or Germany after the Second World War or Japan after the Second World War. It can go towards that direction and therefore grow the economy quite well. Or it can choose the opposite direction of going towards more state control, more government intervention, more taxes, more debt and so on and so forth, and therefore have less economic growth. To me, it's all about that direction. I don't think the lessons of Hong Kong or, or all of these other places are directly um, relevant to us apart from that direction side of things. 
But I think the most important, I suppose, example is one that I wrote about for Fortune and Freedom as well. And that was Germany after World War II, which had its own effective Brexit uh, by basically saying that the economic controls that the Allied government had imposed on Germany were no longer valid. And after that, they had the economic miracle. And it was only after getting rid of price controls, getting rid of all sorts of regulations, getting rid of labor standard laws that basically forced people to work. It was after getting rid of all that stuff that the boom happened that many British people are familiar with. And I suppose then that does then come back to what's happening now where we're obviously in the UK going in the other direction and things that things are tightening the the freedom side of your fortune and freedom is actually becoming less but with with the government's response to coronavirus at the start of the pandemic there was a lot of talk about this could be an opportunity to build back better it doesn't seem that the government has taken those chances do you think coronavirus response has been a missed opportunity i think british policy on coronavirus has been like a pinball it's just getting whacked around all over the place um and I think every part of our understanding of COVID is just as, as confused and messed up. As far as I can tell, this pandemic has been designed to make a fool out of anyone with an opinion about it, regardless of what your opinion is. At some point, you will seem to have been proven wrong or you'll seem to have been proven right for a while. So it's total chaos on, on that count. Um, what we do know is that government debt is getting out of control um, to levels that are you know, getting extreme. Um, so all those years of austerity, well, what happened to that? I mean, what's it going to mean? Are we going to be able to go through that again? I doubt it. So to me right now, all of this is so uncertain and so up in the air that it's incredibly difficult to drive something useful out of it. You know, unless you're someone who's on the, uh, the furlough scheme, you know, collecting money, I don't think you should be thinking too much about that particular issue. One of the things I think that Fortune and Freedom will focus on is Control the things you can control. Focus on those rather than you know, spending your time getting aggravated or, or ecstatic about what's happening on the political level, on the policy level or on the pandemic level. Goodness, I wish I had that, that discipline. Okay, so, so how? What, what kind of things can, can the individual, whether they are furloughed or struggling to keep their business open, whatever situation they're in, what can every individual in the UK control? Uh, obviously, their finances, that's the, the key point in fortune and freedom. And specifically, their investments, their plans for the future, how much they save, how much they spend, these sorts of things. What we'll focus on more than anything is, is the investment side, because I think that is where our expertise is and our interests are. And I think it's also where there's a lot of opportunity because how people are, are being served by fund managers and the stock market and you know, all of these, the, the financial industry, the financial establishment broadly hasn't been great for about 20 years um, at least. So people are being disappointed there and that's what creates the opportunity for us to outline alternatives and ways for they, that they can um, not just take back control but actually get better results. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a, a key message which is often missed. It's, yeah, it's not necessarily just the control thing because a, a lot of people want the, the hand-holding um, when they're looking after their finances but actually if they're, they're missing out on returns as well. So... So what is it about the city establishment which seems which is which has created this culture of of people in the UK not necessarily having very good control over their finances? Well, we're the global financial center of the world or at least one of several. Um so we've got this massive industry based in the UK. So I think that explains a big part of it. We have access to effectively you know, a global universe of shares 
um, rather than you know in Australia they've only really got access to to Australian shares um, and you know, in China Chinese shares. We've got global access right here on London Stock Exchange. So everything should be going well for us. The problem is that the financial industry, broadly speaking, is uh, or I should say the people in it are human beings. They're self-interested, but just like everyone else. They try and maximize their own benefits, and the lack of financial literacy has allowed them to run riot over their customers as far as I'm concerned. So they sell them things that they might not need. Um, and there's been a big scandal in Australia about this recently where you know, they literally charge dead people fees, things like that, that were completely outrageous. There's this, this odd culture of you know, if your customer doesn't understand or know about it, it seems to be okay, it seems to be fine for the financial industry to go ahead and do it. And we have fund manager scandals like the Woodford scandal. So there seems to be a cultural problem that's a combination of the financial services industry being self-interested, which is just human nature, and the lack of financial literacy. And the obvious way for me to solve that problem is to help people with the financial literacy side instead of some sort of regulations or controls on what's basically just human self-interest. So at what stage does this financial literacy have to improve? I mean, I've been, I talk a lot about trying to get better financial literacy in schools um, and, and then and then throughout, throughout, throughout life. But where... Where does the change really need to start? Well, how's the schools side of things working out for you? Well, it's difficult. The schools are, um, are the conversations that I've had with schools are, yeah, we need this. We, we absolutely, we, we need better financial education in schools, but it's getting it in there, which is the, which is the challenge. And I mean, I'd love to be able to talk more in schools about finance, but the timetabling, it just doesn't seem to work. Yeah, I think... That shows how difficult it is to try and use top-down measures to bring this about, to bring financial literacy about. So I'm deeply skeptical of, of any government measure just based on my ideology and understanding of history. But the fact that we can't get financial literacy taught in schools is a pretty good example of how messed up and how bad an idea top-down sort of management of people's education is. To me, it's all about whether people realize that there isn't going to be someone doing it for them. So if you're told all your life, don't worry about retirement because the state pension will take care of you, your employer will take care of you, the stock market will go up and that will you know, increase your, your pension pot and you'll be fine in retirement, then you don't care. You don't pay attention. That's the natural response. Whereas if you're told this is your responsibility and you know, how much responsibility you take and how much of an interest you take determines what sort of retirement and, and, and I guess uh, standard of life you get later on in life, then suddenly people will, instead of being taught financial literacy, will, will take an interest and will find you know, the financial literacy out there. That's, it's not hard to get once you have the incentive. Do you think, do you think there is enough out there for people to, to do themselves? Yeah, there's, I, I don't think there's any shortage at all. At, at all. And I think anyone who does take an interest, will find loads. What's interesting about Fortune and Freedom is that a huge portion of the reader feedback we get seems to be about people who were let down by the financial industry. And that was the moment that they woke up. That was the moment they realized this isn't good enough and I need to take back control and take responsibility in order to get something that is good enough. And that does involve making your own mistakes, by the way. It does involve understanding that investment isn't you know, simple and, and guaranteed returns or anything like that. You have to understand risk and all sorts of other things. But the point is that once you do, you can improve your outcomes. And 
at that point, financial literacy doesn't become an educational burden. It's just a reality of life. So I suppose then the education side of things is making people more aware. And is that the, the aim of Fortune and Freedom to make as many people as possible more aware that you're not going to be looked after by the financial institutions? That's one way of going about it. The other focus would be the opportunities that are on offer. If you do take interest and do take responsibility and how much you can improve things. But I think the thing to focus on here is that instead of being educated about financial literacy, people are told not to worry about it because they will be taken care of. I would say that's the current government position. Now they detail how that's going to happen. So in the last few years, uh, the idea of um, defined contribution pensions has been big. And actually the UK system is closely modeled on the Australian system, which has been around for a bit longer and um, has had that built into it for longer. But the key idea remains that really that's not going to work just as the state pension wasn't enough. And then the defined benefits pensions started struggling. The defined contribution idea won't work either in my view, because just assuming that the stock market's going to boom and therefore you'll have enough money is just false. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I suppose that's another lesson for, for people to really learn is that stock the stock market and investment isn't isn't necessarily always a one directional thing although it is over the long run it it has been over the long run and being able to deal with shocks and uh, i mean this week in the uk we showed it showed that even even some of our best investors the private investors who really are very active in the stock market they just can't cope with big shocks and we saw hargreaves lansdowne and aj bell couldn't cope with the suddenly everyone wanted to sell their shares and buy their shares and it was madness Yeah, I think we need to be really careful about mantras like stocks go up in the long run. Um, I don't think that's true, uh, quite frankly. It hasn't been true for many places other than the US for a very long time. And if you look at the US's history, it wasn't true for very long periods of that time as well. Uh, I think about 60 years inflation adjusted, the Dow Jones industrial average didn't go anywhere for, I think, two different time periods in the last 100 years. The, The key issue there being the inflation. So, I mean, in Japan, stocks don't go up in the long run. You'd probably lose your financial services license here if you claimed it because it's not considered to be true. And if you do say it, people laugh at you. So people need to understand why do stocks sometimes boom and why do they sometimes bust? Because mantras like the stock market, well, that's the index. The stocks in the index have completely changed over time. So once again, there's another issue of how do you actually generate the returns of stocks go up in the long run? So all of these, these mantra that mantras that placate people into not worrying are really dangerous in my view okay so so we obviously yeah that makes complete sense so but that is a an issue that people are really trying to overcome the fact that the the baseline feeling for a lot of people is to be nervous of the stock market to have that there's a risk there's an anti-risk appetite which is something that I find extremely frustrating. You can't have rewards without taking a little risk. Uh, risk risk is, a, is a dirty word in the English language, but actually in the financial markets, it's, a, it's an essential word. It's a, it's a positive word. Um, but how do you, how do you make, allow people to overcome that fear without giving them positive mantras like you will make money in the long run from the stock market? Yeah, the way the investor thinks about risk and the meaning of the word risk in everyday English language is a really interesting topic to get into, especially if you're interested in financial literacy. Um, They mean completely different things. But 
to me, it's all about explaining to people that the opportunities are very large if you invest carefully with the right risk management and so on and so forth. If you assume things will go well and therefore you can simply power your money into the stock market and in a few years' time, a gold-plated pension will simply spit out the other end, that's not going to work well for you. So for most people, I'm not sure stocks are a great idea because it does require some time and some interest and some focus on what's going on. And if, if they assume stocks will go up in the long run and they're disappointed, well, maybe they shouldn't have done that in the first place. Um, and I think people who followed that mantra for the last 20 years have been deeply disappointed. So if you, know, you, you are very wary of the stock market, well, don't just jump in, educate yourself, think about whether the opportunities really are there and then decide what to do. And that is a very good thing to do, but it does take more time. And that's where people end up in the hands of wealth managers charging them 2.5% on a relatively small pot. So, so how, how do you get people to understand that that time spent is worth it and that 2.5% is definitely not? By subscribing to Fortune and Freedom, of course. <laughs> or the Investors um, Chronicle. <laughs> yes, that's right. So I don't think it's a good idea for people to make the stock market their full-time job. They'll probably get sucked into some sort of day trading service that's going to be a bit of a nightmare over time. So you do need to think about these things in a way that you can do them sustainably. And I think one of the reasons we have a, a daily newsletter that gets sent out every morning at 9am is because it is digestible and over time people will come to understand more. Most people will not be in a situation where they are completely new to the stock market. Almost all of us have been de facto invested in stocks in some way or another, uh, thanks to government policy or corporate pensions or whatever it is. So even if you are someone who's completely new to the stock market, there are opportunities, but most of us probably already have some sort of incentive to actually you know, pick up this mantle of financial literacy and learning about investing and figuring out what's really going on with your money. Um, they've already got that incentive. So this is a, a long-term game then to, to get the, this. It's a, it's a changing attitude, which isn't obviously going to happen overnight. What is the, the vision of the future for, for you and for Fortune and Freedom and, and really for, for, for Nigel Farage as well, uh, obviously, and, and, uh, and where we should be aiming, what we, what we should be aiming for? Yeah, that's a really good question. And going into this project, we had a few different ideas of what we might want to aim for. For example, we considered, I think, for a while trying to get a certain number of people to sign up to ISAs um, as, as, you know, an identifiable goal. The short answer is we haven't decided on a specific one yet. The general goal is basically to get more people to take that control of, of their finances and to invest in you know, carefully in the right sorts of things um, to start becoming aware of what's going on in financial markets because even if you're not an investor, it does still impact you. And to think about, I suppose the risks and the opportunities evenly so that even if you don't make an investment, which could be the right thing to do, you are still thinking about these issues in a way that when the right moment to make an investment does come, you do buy the right stocks. And what does the city look like if the, the, the general population has this attitude of take back control? Yeah, that's a good question um, for fund managers and so on and so forth um, and, and asset managers. My worry for the city is that things like the, the definancialization movement 
is going to have a much bigger impact. So things like cryptocurrencies and digital central banking um, and blockchain could have a much bigger impact on our banking system and financial services uh, than people taking back control of their finances because it's really just getting rid of some middlemen. And as far as I'm concerned, at least historically speaking, that's been good in every other industry and it saves costs. And I'm sure the people in the asset management industry can find something else to do with their time. Um, I don't think that they are necessary for most British investors. Now, obviously, there'll be some people who are very well served by their fund manager and their advisor and their broker and all the intermediaries. But the point is that we think a lot of people can do better. And those particular people who can do better should consider signing up to Fortune Freedom. Brilliant. Thanks very much for spending time, Nick. Really great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>